oxytocin does not show up in flow. It shows up in group flow, but it is only produced in group experiences. But when we have flow experiences in the natural world, if we have nature relatedness, we may also be getting oxytocin. That's amazing. And that's a right. Really, that weird, shows the interconnectedness question. at a neurobiologic level, and that's pretty remarkable. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Everybody, I want to welcome you to the Devil's Dictionary launch party with Stephen Cutler and Dr. Sarah Sarkis. This is going to be a, uh, I feel it's going to be an extra fun crowdcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're all attending and online with us. Sarah, I know you have, it seems, an infinite number of questions about everything related to the book, so I'm excited for you to take the reins on the questions, but I'm going to kick us off here, Stephen, uh, with a question that leads in with a quote from the devil's dictionary which is for context for everyone is going to be the the main topic today and that's stephen's newest novel so this is about i think this is a couple of chapters in Stephen. you say uh evo game gives you a whole life review with evo you get a whole species review the trip starts at the beginning of evolution and plays the tape forward Different people experience different developmental paths. One arc goes from bacteria, viruses, and I'm going to get this word wrong, protozoa, <laughs> into insects, dinosaurs, and birds. Another goes small mammals, large mammals, humans. You trip evolution. Ibrahim nodded. No shit, said Lion. I mean, with our abilities, you fire up those circuits. I mean, no shit. When can I try some? So that's a uh, that's a little little snippet from the Devil's Dictionary. And um, for anyone who's not clear, ibogaine is a is a very powerful psychedelic. So the context here is Evo, which is um, a psychedelic feature of the book. So Stephen, I'm curious if you give us a breakdown on uh, on how that shows up throughout the Devil's Dictionary and uh, what Evo is within the context of the Devil's Dictionary. This one to answer the you started the hard question, Rand. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I think so. The only way to answer this one is to back up and talk about there was a prequel book, Last Tango in Cyberspace. You don't have to have read it at all to read the Devil's Dictionary, because uh, Rian skipped over two chapters, and, and I'm going to summarize what's in some of those. Um, in the first book, there is a novel psychedelic that expands nature relatedness, which is a, an innate human characteristic. It's, it's our fondness for nature, people high in nature relatedness, their sphere of caring extends to plants, animals, and ecosystems kind of thing. Uh, and this is, a, this is a psychedelic that massively expands it and allows humans and animals to share consciousness. So this is in the first book. 
in the second book, I had to build on that. I had to give you a psychedelic that was more delicious and more interesting than the first psychedelic. And the reason is this, if you look at sort of the history of, 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 of psychedelics and the history of like people using these substances, we tend to go from, we like more extreme substances. So we, you know, we started with Mellora stuff and we've now worked our way up to DMT where DMT is a psychedelic that people are widely using uh, in, in counterculture these days and, and often in mainstream culture. And a lot of people are going down and having ayahuasca trips and things like that. If you go back to the sixties, we were terrified of DMT. It was a crazy outlandish drug that nobody did. And acid was as strong, but now it evolved. So our taste for psychedelic altered state experiences evolved and I wanted something that would expand nature relatedness sort of beyond I had already like created a drug that produced pure cross species empathy or what, what is known as cross species empathy. I wanted to take that farther. So I created a drug, a psychedelic that allowed you to experience evolution and evolutionary time and what that feels like. So that's what you're referring to. And, um, Yes, I'd like to try that drug. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, that'd definitely be fun to take together. Um, so, Stephen, I want to ask you one broad question before uh, we dive into Sarah, your questions here in a second. Just to make sure everyone's got context and we're all on the same page, could you zoom us out a bit and talk to us about Last Tango, how that came about? and the beginning of your fiction writing career, at least with, with respect to, to Last Tango and this book. So everyone's up to speed and then we'll go into to more specifics here. So I am actually trained as a poet, as an undergraduate and a novelist at, uh, in graduate school, um, which means if you're getting human performance advice from us, you're taking human performance advice from a poet. So let's just get that yeah. out of the way. Exactly. Um, I love that so much. Right up, it's like, right also, where's my poem? Um, there's a reason I haven't written poetry in 40 years or 30 years or something like that. Uh, but uh, I, well, I went away from it for, uh, for after I, I wrote a first novel, took about 11 years to write. And then I literally stopped writing fiction for 20 years. And when I was researching the futures faster than you think with Peter Diamandis. And we were uh, trying to imagine what the world was like when all these exponentially accelerated technologies that we had been writing about in abundance and bold and I'd worked on in Tomorrowland sort of started meshing together and converging and appearing in one world. And this is over like what happened in the next 10 to 15 years. And it was really hard for me to answer that question. So what I did is I took all those technologies, I put them in a world and I started telling stories in that world. Last Tango is the first, uh, The Devil's Dictionary is the second. So I created a world that is our world 15 to 20 years hence. And the major difference is I said in this world that I'm creating, we've solved on a certain level the major environmental challenges we now face. We've beaten back the worst parts of climate change and species die off. And both books were an attempt to answer the question, what kind of major shifts in society would need to take place for us to be able to solve those environmental challenges. So that's sort of the backstory. And it features a character named Lion Zorn, both books. Lion Zorn is an empath, which is a genetic mutant. 
that shows up in the early 21st century. It's sort of like an empath on super steroids. Lion feels empathy. His sense of empathy doesn't just extend to all humans. It extends to plants, to animals, to ecosystems. Um, so it extends far beyond the borders of species. And it can also sense uh, his empathy isn't just individual, like most of our sense of empathy is. It's cultural. So we can start to sense how culture shifts and merges at, based on kind of emotional behavior, which makes it a useful skill for a certain kind of company. And in both of these thrillers, uh, Lion gets sort of embraggled in uh, huge sort of multinational versus multinational conspiracy theory weirdness uh, with major uh, environmental consequences. And, and both books sort of examine those two ideas. So I want to just ask you then about the the big themes in uh, Last Tango and Devil's Dictionary. I mean, there's there's a, a reasonably high degree of overlap. There, we've got empathy, environmentalism, um, nature relatedness, which sort of relates to both of those components. Futurism. Can you speak to the the big themes across the the two books and and how they uh, how they emerged and and how those themes are changing. Um, between Last Tango and Devil's Dictionary? The, the easiest place to start talking about the big themes, I think, is to talk about uh, nature relatedness. And it's, and it's sort of like, what does it take to solve our current environmental challenges? And the argument that, that I'm making in, in the books and thinking about is sort of the major theme and it's the best sort of place to start answering your question is talk to most psychologists so are included about why the world is, is currently facing so many environmental challenges. One of the main answers you hear is, and I've written a couple of emails, if you've read the emails recently, you've, I've written a couple of things about this recently, is the brain you know, takes in a millions and millions of bits of information every second, consciousness a couple thousand bits at most, and attention, right? And this is Chicks at Me High's work among other people is maybe 200, 300 bits. So most of reality gets filtered out and, you know, the brain is charged with survival. So anything that doesn't help us survive is what goes first. And in the modern world, we live in boxes. We stare at boxes all day and we stare at boxes inside of boxes. Right now we're staring at like 11 boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes, right? That's our experience. So the brain says, oh, box world is what's super important to survival. And it starts filtering everything else out, including much of the natural world. So if you talk to psychologists and neuroscientists, they'll say, look, we have this huge problem, which is we literally can't see or perceive what we're trying to protect. And we have to that has to shift that's a big mind shift and and this is this is literally a perceptual challenge it's like a cognitive bias against nature essentially so one of the ways this gets shifted is empathy empathy expands our sphere of caring and it expands what information the brain says is important and not important things but that in flow this is what happens to us when we're deep in flow nature relatedness increases empathy expands this happens sort of naturally in flow there's a bunch of different reasons for why but it's one of the things that the state does is it expands empathy it expands nature relatedness and we know from a, a lot of and by the way flow is not the only altered state that will do this meditative states do it trans states will do it motherhood uh, does it like motherhood does nursing it. does it right like there's oh, I didn't know that. you know there's loads of places where you get these 
you get this expansion in your capacity to relate and live inside the experience of others, right? So I think there's like loads of states you can get to, but I also think there's like, you know, biological. Oh, and I will like I, a lot of this. So a lot of the, the, my biggest experience with this shift and a lot of where this book came from, I wrote an email about Misha, right? When I, we, we were starting our dog rescue, it was really hard going from like eight dogs in a pack to 25. Life got really crazy. And we dealt with really severely traumatized dogs, dogs with cancer and heart disease and lots of ailments and a lot of like mental challenges, brain damage. And some of it, a lot of these dogs were abused and a lot of the abusers were men. So even though they started healing, once they got to our sanctuary, they sort of like come into their personalities. And a lot of those personalities were, we hate men. And I used to get attacked by our dogs on a regular basis. Now we do small dog rescue predominantly. So these were sometimes chihuahuas, but I'd get up at three o'clock in the morning to go take a piss and I'd be getting back into bed and I'd get bit. Or I, this dog Misha used to stalk me on my way back from the office. End of the day, I'm exhausted. I've worked like 14 hours and all I want is food. And Misha would like hide in the fields and try to attack me. And I was getting madder and madder. And I've discovered that if you shout it, already traumatized dogs it's Makes both it bad for the dog and very bad for your marriage so that was not good uh couldn't do more of that and uh as a result i needed a strategy so i i really out of absolute desperation i don't even know where the idea came from i basically sort of forced myself to put my money where my mouth was i've been walking around talking about equal rights for animals and stuff like that for a long time and suddenly i was like okay you got to treat misha like he was a close family member who was losing his mind he was super angry for whatever reason and in that case you wouldn't get mad back you try to calm them down you try to help them and so i forced myself every time sort of misha would try to attack me i would you know treat him as if he was my brother having a nutty or the way my brothers taught you know treated me when i was having a nutty and the weirdest thing was was two three weeks in i started noticing massive amounts of more details about misha's behavior and all the other animals in the pack and it was mm -hmm. suddenly since we, uh, my wife and i started this rescue joy my wife uh would always come up to me and say things like yeah misha's having a bad day blah blah, blah. this is happening this is... i had no idea what she was talking oh, about see i uh -huh. actually thought she was making it up i thought she was crazy yeah she's crazy and suddenly i was like holy shit i'm seeing all the details and what with misha i started to notice that like in the house if i'd walk into a room little tiny hair in his butt would stand up and it was the beginning of a fear response and if i crouched down and talked softly at that moment it wasn't threatening he calmed down and yeah. over time reacting like that changed the whole behavior and everything else. So when I started thinking about the devil's dictionary and these things it, and nature relatedness, that was the shift I was interested in providing with people because once you start seeing that level of behavior in, in dogs, once you start level noticing that level of detail in dogs, you start to realize that there's a lot of, there's so many similarities between dogs and humans at a really deep kind of behavioral level that you don't notice until you start seeing these details and that so empathy for the animal actually and treating seeing the animal more as a human being actually ended up making the animal much more like the human being in the end and i was like oh wow that's an unlocking move how do we get how do, can other people have that experience you obviously you know i could ask you to like think about the animals in your world differently or the plants in your world differently but that's 
why I started thinking about novel psychedelics and things like that. And, you know, you said motherhood produced it. I would, yeah, I was interested in stuff that happened naturally, sometimes in flow, sometimes, you know, through a shift in perspective, but it, you know, both of those things are not super easy to give to people. Right, right, right. And also so, you bring up a thus really I wrote good, a fun book. I know it's such a good book, but you also bring up a really good point about empathy there. That is about like sort of it's it's really anchored in this co-regulation process that people get that you develop in infancy, right? So it's like you could notice the hair on the back of Misha's butt, right? And you could start co-regulating right then. And that's really where like the shift, I'm, I'm assuming Misha made major strides in his behavior, he or, never, or at least he, he never, did. He never really stopped barking at me, but he did stop attacking at me. He still that's felt huge. it was important to warn everybody that I was coming, because of course I was a threat, but he did stop attacking me. And, and for that, um, I really am grateful. Yeah, and it's that's a huge, like that's a developmental, um, her, that's a Herculean milestone. And now it's 10 years later, so now he just sort of ignores me, but it's good. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. It's We're also, sort of it's also proof that like, you know, uh, you can teach old dogs new tricks. It's true. <laughs> it is. It, it is true. Um, I've actually got a whole new book on that coming out, but not this one. And not the other one <laughs> that I also somehow know about. And let's not forget that you told me after Art of Impossible that you were taking a full 12 months off of writing. But I won't keep pointing out the obvious that this is clearly, at this point, it's like an a addiction. syndrome this, this, or no, something. It's just an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rian, did you have questions, Sarah? Do you have questions? Sarah, I'm going to let you go first. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so I have so many different spaces. I don't want to ruin this book. It's so good. I also want to tell people like everybody out there that I am, in the interest of full disclosure, not a fiction reader. I have read two fiction novels in 20 years, this one and one that Stephen recommended to me in 20, like late 2020 or early 2021. This is so good. So I don't want to ruin this, but I will say it tucked inside this book is all this super interesting like tech stuff. So I have technical questions about the tech, mostly so I know when to invest in getting to another planet because right. I don't <laughs> want to be here when it happens. Okay. Um, so like one of my questions is, you know, you talk a lot about in here, like there's really disruptive technology. Obviously there's the M tracking stuff. There's the brain connectome mapping system, right? There's the ghost tech. Is that a real genre? Are these uh, all, are these going to happen in my lifetime? So we've been, the, the, the connectome, that right, terrifies me the, the most. The, okay, the, let's start the connect, there. The brain's connections, yeah, right? And horrifying. Now, I have taken this technology and rolled it considerably forward, but this work has been going on for 20 years. There's the whole brain, uh, Paul Allen's whole brain mapping project is one version. There's, there's a bunch of different versions and a lot of the really interesting, uh, and in fact, some of the work that we've been doing on Flow, the functional connectivity work, um, utilizes these connectome maps. Now, 
where it gets super interesting is when they get really hyper detailed and, and they start being it? predictive and you can start you right and things things like that and those are all questions that i you know that are raised by the book and i think one of the super raised in such a great way you raise these I, questions i just I, I sort of feel like the stuff people are upset about or worried about or concerned about or thinking about technologically like they're the wrong they're, it's like they're the wrong questions and it's also like the, a lot of the questions, the things we're talking about, are, are, they're already over. Like the, there are so many new, big, crazy questions coming within the next 10 to 15 years. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I want to get out ahead of some of these questions and say, okay, let's let's really look at these things because these are these are all interesting issues. Okay, they're so opportunities or they're challenges. They're both. And this book, I told you before we got on, this is like I'm I'm opening the door to my midlife crisis. This is like an existential crisis for me inside the pages of this book. And I loved it. But you bring up that you wanted to get ahead of some of these questions. So one of the things you do brilliantly in this book is while there is lots of tech and there's this thriller taking place, this is really a story about the most disruptive technology of all which is empathy, which yeah. is this capacity with, of empathy and what it can be used for and against, right? That's sort of this bigger story that's tucked in, inside of this book. And you ask this great question, which I think people should really think about. You ask that the, the um, who's the character that asks this question. He says, the question about improving upon nature. It, is it uh, you're talking, it's No, it's Chang Zi. It's the bad guy in the, last, in the final speech in the book. Right, but then you start to think, is he the bad? I mean, I guess well, he's, a, whole, he's right, a bad guy, the, but that, like well, that's you, the, that's uh, another no, part of my crisis. Well, most of my characters tend to, do a lot of things, right? They invert on themselves yes. a lot. They start out one thing, they become something else, um, especially in this book. Um, and that that in this book, that's very intentional. But I, the bad guy does ask questions about, is it important to improve life, right? If we have genetic technology, um, should we improve up, upon life? And what's interesting about this question is- it, Here's how asked, you phrased it. Okay. That humans have a moral obligation to improve on nature. That's a huge proposition. Well, and I, again, put into the mouth of the bad guy. Who I might know. Not be entirely the bad guy, but um, the my my point on that thing on that is so what. And I God, I don't even know how to give this away, but um, I know it's so. Hard. We're talking about removing humanity's violent instincts from the gene code. So let's just put, let's put it there. Um, and those start to become hard and uncomfortable and weird questions that you, you know, most of us have two or three or four answers to, and I have no clear way to get there. But like what I was going to say earlier is here's something that you probably don't think about, but so I was in, uh, I'm one of the organizations that I do a lot of work with is the Lab to Land Collective, it's a synthetic biology approach to forest health and catastrophic wildfire. And I 
was at a meeting there recently, and it's DARPA's involved in a bunch of top geneticists and genomicists at top labs. And when they talk about restoration ecology, like we're going to restore the landscape to how it originally was, when is the question that you have? Because it was a very different landscape 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. And which one is natural? is a really weird question in restoration ecology and how we think. So it's not just we're going to change the species going forward, but we're making like weird sort of decisions going backwards, too. And that's what I mean by like the questions that are coming are really complicated. Like the ones we're looking at now are a lot simpler. And this the stuff that come that's coming gets really complicated. Yeah, it's super complicated. This book does a great job. Like the story around it is fantastic, but man, does it make you think about both how that might look in the future, how that looks in the hands of different personality structures. Oh, and by the way, Robert Suarez is, on, is, is with us and Robert's one of the geniuses behind Lab to Land. This is the type of crossroads that this thriller this basically it's a psychological thriller um, set in the future is sort of is tapped into. Right. And it literally spans the United States um, in the coolest way possible. But you also um, in here, like talk a little bit about your whole thing with empathy in this book, like give people a sense of the role that empathy plays here. I mean, I, you know, the book is just a call for empathy for all, right? It's extending empathy to, for plants, animals, and ecosystems, and all humans and all plants, all animals, all ecosystems. And I think that is the shift we need to make as a world in order to actually solve climate change, to solve species die off when we think about plants animals and ecosystems when the forests are our family right we do we go to extraordinary measures to protect our families and that is i mean if you look even if you look at like some of the brilliant like john Doerr's recent book speed and scale which is a really great detailed fight climate change plan really good the amount of effort it's going to require, right? When Peter and I wrote Abundance, and I was really interested in using tech, that disruptive technology in Abundance and Bold to solve environmental challenges, we said, look, we have the tech to solve the problems, but it's going to require the largest cooperative effort in history. And that's like all human beings working together in flow, right, performing at our best to solve these challenges. And I wrote Abundance and wrote Bold, and I saw humanity pick up the mantle on poverty and energy scarcity and health care and education all of the human challenges got solved but the environmental stuff sort of got pushed to the wayside and nobody really was using this technology right it it didn't even matter like i'd written a bunch of books about it i kept trying to like get people to see this problem and i started to realize that like People literally are not seeing and perceiving the natural world. I was, you know, it didn't matter how much I talked about it or shadow, like there was a, a literal cognitive bias. There was an information processing problem. So how to bridge that gap to get a plan like John Doerr's Speed and Scale or a plan like Peter and I laid out in abundance or anything like that actually going, um, you have to massively expand our sphere of caring. In, you know, you need cross-species 
empathy. And that means empathy is how you expand empathy, right? It's one of, it, it just grows it. And I mean, you, there's lots of techniques, right? Loving kindness meditation and, you know, spend the, the Tibetan loving kindness practice that Richie Davidson studied, spent so much time studying at the University of Wisconsin, really effective meditation technique, but it's known to expand empathy and expand your sphere of caring. And if you make plants, animals, and ecosystems the focus of that meditation, it will even stretch it further. But like those are the questions I was sort of tr trying to poke at is, you know, and I, you know, again, novels are like they slip past the ego. Like this has been known for a long time. Well, you right? say stories, it in the book. Stories work because they slip past yeah. the ego. They turn off the prefrontal cortex. We don't judge them the way we judge other stuff. And the information goes sort of right into our soul. So you can sneak attack people. And hopefully the, the, the book, I don't know, you guys have read it. I wrote it, so it's a different experience. But it should produce some level of cross-species empathy, should help expand that. That was sort of the goal that I give my readers a little feel for what this feels like and what it's like to live in that world and see it through that lens. Does any of that make sense? <laughs> so oh, a question for you around the, uh, the biology of cross-species empathy, which I think is fascinating. You were telling me, and you wrote in a recent newsletter that you had a conversation with Dr. Paul Zak. Yeah, this, well so this is, yeah, this is, the, yeah, it's a, it's a, so uh, Paul and I, we, so cross-species empathy happens for a bunch of different reasons. Most of it, like how wide our sphere of self is sort of located in the parietal lobe, the right parietal lobe, the temporal parietal junction, which does perspective taking. Out-of-body experiences happen there. That's an extreme form of perceptive, perspective shifting, for example. Um, but also, uh, you know, how big and how wide is, is the boundary around self? Similarly, there's a, a neurochemical that underpins nature-relatedness. We know, right, when you go into nature, we get serotonin and uh, we get, uh, and it lowers, increases serotonin. We just found out in 2020 uh, that it also lowers cortisol levels. So we now have, now, why does a 20-minute walk in the woods outperform most, uh, you know, antidepressants and treatments of anxiety and depression? Because it's amplifying serotonin and lowering cortisol. But what happens once you have nature relatedness, when you go into nature, what I, Paul and I were talking about is I was like, Paul, some of my best friends are trees. So when I go into a forest, am I just getting serotonin or am I getting other pro-social chemicals? And he said, no, no, I also think you're getting oxytocin. And that explains something that shows up with nature relatedness. So nature relatedness, and this is well known when you have this trait or when it's induced via altered states of consciousness flow psychedelic states or whatever it almost immediately starts producing environmental activism there's a behavioral it's not just a perceptive change there's a behavioral change on the back end and paul has pointed out his lab has done a lot of work both he was the one his lab first discovered that oxytocin produces trust and underpins human cooperation he has since figured out that when you have more oxytocin in your system, it doesn't just increase empathy and trust. It also directly increases charity and uh, activism. And tribalism. So, and, and All well, spectrums of belonging right. get increased, right? You don't get to pick what the oxytocin impacts. It's in your system and it impacts all the ways in which, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. It, I mean, but you draw your tribal, I mean, the, the interesting thing about this, so most people don't realize this, but at a really foundational level, right, whenever a life form, humans, 
plants, animal, whatever, meets another life form, it asks a really simple yes or no question. Is this thing like me or not like me? Yes or no, us or them. If it's like me, maybe I can mate with it or maybe I can befriend it. If it's not like me, maybe I should run away so it doesn't eat me or maybe I should eat it, right? Like me or not like me is, and this border initially, like our family is like us, our tribe is like us, but those people who live in that other city over there, they're not exactly like us, right? Like we draw these like us, not like us board and it happens automatically. Oxytocin helps draw that line, right? It's if in our system, we're hanging out with dogs and plants and we notice it, suddenly the line gets extended that far out. But so though, you know, good and bad. And what's interesting about this is, so oxytocin does not show up in flow. It shows up in group flow, but it is only produced in group experiences. But when we have flow experiences in the natural world, if we have nature relatedness, we may also be getting oxytocin. That's amazing. That's a re right. Really that weird, shows the interconnectedness question. at a neurobiologic level. And that's pretty remarkable. Stephen, in the same way that oxytocin plays a role in both bonding, but also tribalism and in-group, out-group dynamics, is there, do you think, a, a negative role oxytocin can play when it comes to environmental destruction or, um, you know, potentially an in-group dynamic that justifies... Such a good question. Um, yeah, kind of uh, dis destroying or damaging the environment. Yeah, I mean, I like, where... <sighs> So I'm to stay out of trouble. <laughs> I gotta, so that what so, say you? Well, so when everything got really crazy, in my opinion, it was crazy before. But uh, James Watt, um, who I've met actually, and is, is a nice man, even though he's the devil. Um, uh, I think was, you just got uh, yourself in trouble. Secretary of the, I told him he was the devil. The first, I, I, I've said this to his face. Um, but uh, he, when he was Secretary of Interior under Reagan, he created something called the Wise Use Movement. And it was a, up to that point, conservatives in America had been very big on environmentalism and conservation and all those things. From the Wise Use Movement basically said, no, 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 this is private property. You should have the right to do whatever you want on your private property and undercut a lot. It wasn't wise use, it undercut a lot of environmental, major environmental laws. And how I got introduced to all this is Mad Magazine used to, uh, on their back page, they used to do those fold it things where you'd fold it up and there'd be a puzzle or something. And uh, for the first time ever, they didn't put that puzzle there. They put a picture of James Watt. They listed everything he did. And they said, we at Mad don't think it's funny. And it was like the first piece of like environmental, I was 10 or 11, but it was like, it cemented something in me because I was, I read what he Crystallizing did. Crystallizing experience. This is, this is just wrong and hypocritical and, you know, a bunch of words I probably didn't know when I was 12, but you know. That was the feeling. That was your early, that was, that was Stephen Kotler, the early days of outrage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the budding outrage. Um, but I do think, um, Rian, I really love that question and I kind of want to weigh in on it too because I think if you think about it this way that essentially it's like morally and ethically neutral. So it really will go, if you have like the dark triad in you and you're a high empath or even a moderate empath, we think there's roughly sort of 10 to 13%. Sarah, you got, most people aren't going to know what the dark triad is. So why don't you start there? So the dark triad is it's narcissistic um now i'm gonna forget the exact three things what is it it's narcissistic. oh my god 
I've got it. It's narcissism, narcissism. Uh, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. It's uh, yeah, it's narcissism. Jonathan, my friends tell me I look like Alfred E. Newman. Narcissism, it's, it's sociopathy, Jonathan. and it's something else. But I, and uh, but when you have, I think what I would say is that your neurochemistry meets sort of if you're an adult, this very complex and only partially understood thing we call sort of morality and a conscience and all of our attachment patterns. So if that oxytocin meets up with, you know, somebody who's got radical beliefs that involve you do harm to people if they don't believe, because empathy is a really complex thing. It is not something you wake up one day and you age into it. It's got complexity and nuance how we become these pro-social empathic creatures. Much is inborn. We see it young. We see it very early there's um the emotional empathy and the mirror neurons but much develops over the first sort of seven to ten years of life and so i think that as we've seen in cults and other sort of very radical expressions of extreme in-group bonding um i do think that oxytocin can be used uh, as a weapon. I think pretty much anything inside the human spectrum can be. I think there's no shortage of evidence that we're pretty good at that. We're, you know, we, we can use things for either, you know, incredible change and beauty or like really horrific destruction. So I do think it's something to think about like who your, how your empathy aligns you with people because once you're aligned with a certain ally it necessitates another that isn't you guys it's searching for that in fact right mm -hmm. so um that's just yeah if, if the environment can become or trees can become friends you know, theoretically, they can also equally become enemies under certain circumstances. Yeah. So you re you referenced an article, which was the, the subtitle of the article was an ecological idea whose time has come. Um, and I'm curious if you could tell us about mega linkages in general, what they are, uh, and why you have talked about them, I think a number of times as a potentially, you know, interesting environmental initiative that that could be could be implemented. So uh, conservation biology was a field that sort of emerged uh, in the 70s, predominantly from the work of a man named Michael Soule. And Soule was, uh, studied island biogeography, which is the study of population on, on islands. And one of the things that happens on islands is they're prone to extinction events. So a volcano goes off on an island and a bunch of the species there go extinct. And one of the reasons they go extinct is not that the volcano kills them, but it kills off enough of the species that because there's a body of water around the island and you can't import new ones, they're just, they're, the gene code gets, gene pool gets too small and you have inbreeding, incest, and the line dies out. This is known as an extinction event. What Soule figured out is, holy crap, if you're a snake, you don't need the Pacific ocean to create an island you won't cross a road if you're a snake and you're preyed upon by birds 
you are innately hardwired not to cross a highway. And a lot of animals are actually wired this way. So he started to realize that the modern world, our roads, our, our suburbs, our sprawl, literally was putting animals on islands and making them extremely prone to extinction. So why are animals going, why are extinction rates a thousand times greater than normal and why have we lost 50% of all life on earth? It's because of habit, massive habitat fragmentation. Problem A. Problem B is in ecosystems, you have what are known as keystone predators. These are the predator that's at the top of the pile. And it's usually when they're not there, the ecosystem can't function. They sort of keep the ecosystem super healthy. So the example is when they reintroduced wolves into Yosemite, suddenly the wolves were preying on moose and deer and that population dropped a little bit. And so a lot of the flora and fauna rebounded, which brought in other animals and so forth. And the ecosystem could get restored. The problem when you have these keystone species is usually they're very, very migratory. A mountain lion, for example, can have a 500 mile territory, but a mountain lion won't cross a highway or something like that. Bears, similarly, these keystone species that are keeping our ecosystems safe and healthy need lots of room to roam. So one, habitat fragmentation is terrible. Two, if we want healthy ecosystems, we animals need big room to roam. Finally, climate change means it's getting hotter. And so animals and plants have to migrate north to survive. And if there's fragmented habitat, they're not going to be able to migrate. So Soule came up with the idea that of that what we now what we used to talk about as megalinkages. This this term has sort of fallen out of favor, but a megalinkage was an idea that you could take all of our national parks and try to connect them with migration corridors. So you, you've seen, for example, on freeways now, we have overpasses, animal overpasses, where animals can cross over freeways. These are parts of migration corridors that are being built. And there's uh, the, the, there's been a number of efforts to create uh, mega linkages in America. The most famous is the Yellowstone to Yukon effort, which is still going on today. They're trying to connect Yellowstone to Yukon in one contiguous wildland streak. E.O. Wilson wrote about this in Half Earth. The UN has adopted mega languages in this level of kind of uh, continent wide conservation approaches. This is not like we don't use the term mega languages as much, but this is at the heart of re the rewilding movement in Europe. This is the Defense Department is involved in building migration corridors and things like that. So this is a widespread effort. When I started my work on technology, I actually started with the question of, okay, if we're going to create mega languages, where the hell are we going to get the land? And I realized that most of the land came from being used was either cattle ranching or agriculture, which is why I started becoming a huge advocate of vertical farming and cultured beef. It was, if we can get agriculture and cattle ranching off the land and give the land back to the animals to create mega linkages, we actually have a chance to beat back both climate change and uh, the biodiversity crisis. So that when I started writing Abundance and, and working with Peter and thinking about those kinds of questions, that's the stuff that I've been thinking about and why I had been looking at disruptive technology for environmental challenges was how do we build mega linkages to protect species? Stephen, I think mega linkages, which you just gave a phenomenal breakdown on, by the way, are, are one really good, interesting example of something that can be integrated into fiction. Um, and as you said, kind of slipped through 
It's almost like a little bit of a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. Well, I mean, this is um, so. This is a book about two billionaires, tech billionaires, who are competing in our ecological friendly future to build mega linkages in their own image. Right. This is Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos competing to get into space only 15 years later. And it's new versions of those. Interesting use of the word friendly. The way that you wove this in to this story, though, I would not call this friendly competition. Oh, I don't think it's friendly competition. Yeah. Um, This is life or death. For sure. Yeah. It's uh, I mean. It's a cyberpunk thriller. You got to have menacing shadow corporations. Okay. Cyberpunk. I know we do. So this is the other thing about this book. This needs to be released with a soundtrack for every chapter. It just begs to have music playing. That's like, it's so, it's almost like, it reads like a screenplay. Do you write with music on typically? It depends. Often I will build a playlist that has the emotional vibe that I'm trying to get at in the book. And that was the same with what I was doing with Slipdot and a lot of the like stuff I was listening to in this book. It was just the book like it's a it's an optimistic future, but it's a troubling future. And there's some angry stuff in the book that was different from how I was normally write about stuff. Right. And it sort of required like me to this is oddly you'll never i don't think anybody will notice it hopefully you don't notice this at all this is the most technical book i've ever had to write mm. it's more uh it's more it's, it's much there's much more going on under the hood and there was there was i, I read almost between last tango and this book i read a hundred thrillers um to because i wanted to there was a bunch of questions i had about writing and i thought last tango was really fun but i i really my mission has always been in, in novels. I want to convey really big ideas, but I want really compelling stories. It's always been the same. If you're going to give me six hours or seven hours of your life to read a book, I want you to have an amazing time. I want to blow your mind. I want you to learn a bunch of stuff, but I want you to really have fun. Some writers, that's not important too, but for me, it's really important. I want my audience to have a blast reading my books. So, um, Okay, well, mission accomplished with this fangirl. I had a blast. I want to ask you about that, actually, because I think that's going to be something that people are really interested in. And you speak about this in Flow for Writers. There was um, a quote from you in Flow for Writers, something along the lines of, if you're writing a book and, you know, someone hangs a gun up on the wall in chapter two, you have to make sure that that gun has been fired by the end of the book. In other words, every loop that gets opened has to be closed, and it's very easy to open loops. So, ha- what does the so create- wait? I, I yeah, I want to I want to say the thing about hanging the guns on the walls. Um, that's not mine. I can't take that. Is a famous so there's a Chekhov play where all these people come into a room and they hang guns. You have to check your gun at the door, so you hang a, your gun on, on the peg as you come into the saloon all those guns have to be fired right that and so it's a, it's it's a, it actually i think it came out of uh theater um and how to like close a loop in playwriting but it's incredibly true in uh all books and very the most difficult thing in fiction and this is where novelists have the most problems is it is really easy because you're making it up to fall in love with every tangent you come up with and the truth of the matter is the success of the devil's dictionary in my opinion was due to what i called 
uh, like plot adherence. Like I literally started every scene. I knew where it started and I knew where it ended and I did not deviate because it's so easy and you don't think about it. You'll have a little tangent. A character will say something. You'll introduce a new character or you'll do. And suddenly you have another gun hanging on the wall. And when you get 300 pages later and you've got to like tie everything up, um, it's really, really difficult. You want to, by the way, um, I massively influenced, and I love William Gibson, but if you read Neuromancer, his first book, that's a book where he hung way too many guns on the wall and like he cannot bring it together at the end of the book. And you see this in a, in a, in a lot of, um, even in a lot of sci-fi, and it sort of bugs me in sci-fi that like people, they keep introducing these cool things because it's really easy to do in sci-fi, but if it doesn't drive the plot forward, your re readers don't know what to pay attention to. It's too confusing and you never close the loop and it's not fulfilling. Yeah, it leaves too many like untucked corners then at the end. And the reader may not know cognitively, but they'll feel like either dissatisfaction or an agitation mm -hmm. that yeah, things exactly. aren't closed exactly. out. It's not, it's not bearing the reader in mind. It's kind of the writer writer's indulgence in a sense. Yeah, it feels, See, it feels masturbatory you... to me. Yeah, and exactly. I don't like it. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. How, how do you go about, you know, at the start of the fiction, at the start of writing Last Tango or Devil's Dictionary, you know, you're, you're kind of starting to write. Have you got all the characters mapped out in advance? Have you got a have you got a visual up on your wall with the plot? Like, what the, what does it, the process actually look like? Or are you literally just writing it, coming up with it as you go, and then going back to the beginning and making sure it all syncs up? Or no, I so process? with this book and with with the I knew like what the openings I sort of knew where they started. Um, I knew the major like a couple of the major plot ideas, um, like I. Like I knew there were going to be rival mega linkages at the heart of uh, Devil's Dictionary, and um, in weird ways. And I know where we're going. I sort of like I I know the last scene with this, but with, with Last Tango, what I did is I would map out fifty to seventy pages in advance and make a really like I'd be writing it. I wouldn't know all the characters, but I would know where every chapter started. Like it starts with this here and it ends with this here starts here ends here and as long as i could keep those in mind but you'd have to it was a lot of like resisting temptation um the other thing about this book is this book is more sci-fi than last tango it's a it's farther into the future and there's crazier shit that goes down Right. Sure and is. when you write really crazy, there's crazy scenes and there's a flying motorcycle chase scene, for example, um, which I think is the first flying motorcycle chase scene in literature. Um, but uh, you have to like keep it very tight and not get carried away. It's really, um, it's really easy. I, like I learned this lesson when I was writing screenplays and it's a common error around if you're writing action screenplays. You just start blowing shit up and pretty soon like you've blown up the house and then you've blown up the church and then it's the school and no no that it's the white house and then like oh you got to blow up a mountain and right like it's that problem and so you can't use those those kinds of things aren't easy solutions they're actually bigger problems than you think they are so you have to like everything's got to be a lot tighter than you think it is and fiction it's funny nonfiction is actually freer in a sense, in the writing than fiction is 
to do it well in my experience this may not be for other writers but to do what this this was a really tight like i felt like i was walking a really narrow tightrope um, it was really fun and i loved writing the book but it was it was a challenge in a, in a good way well, Stephen, on that note, actually, that's what one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, in one sense, it seems like or would seem like writing fiction is just like a total blast. You get to think up all these crazy things and jam out about them. But I can imagine it is actually cool. very tricky in certain respects. Yeah. What are the. OK, so like I, the, yeah, the only this is the only thing I have to say on that one. My first novel, Angle Quickest for Flight, took 11 years. Why did it take 11 years? Because I had to throw out 500 pages one time, 800 pages another time, 400 pages a third time, because I kept falling in love with my tangents. And I kept introducing new characters. And like the plot just got thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. And, you know, this, that was, I played with metafiction, like Thomas Pinch and David Foster Wallace. How far can you push on language before it totally breaks down and you're not communicating? but you're still getting the feelings. I wanted to push that back a little bit and still be communicating, but have that like level of art and intensity. But it was really like trying to do that. It took 11 years and I, I mean, I got my ass kicked forever um, on that book. And I will say, by the way, I'd like to point out that I made, I was paid uh, $5,500 for that book. So I think <laughs> hourly uh, after 11 years of work, I, I was like less than like, but I mean, it was like, it was some micro fraction. You actually owe out. them we money had, back. You know, we worked it out at one point. It was like some fraction micro of a penny per year kind of thing. It's terrible. Yeah. Very glamorous learning how to be a writer. Yeah. Well, I will say that you can see like, I, and I hope I, I'm assuming everybody listening can hear like that, how much discipline there is to the writing process, like not just the discipline of getting your ass in the chair and your ideas on paper, but the actual discipline, even when you're in flow, to not take every single self-indulgent whim, right? Well, that's, yeah, that's, so that's, that is the, if you're a, like, obviously I'm pretty good at getting into flow, especially when I'm writing and when you're in flow, man, tangents are delicious, right? Yeah, they're intoxicating. Super delicious. But I, so this is, um, this is the same problem that people have at work all the time. This is a question we answer all the time um, from, from, you know, people who have, you know, started, you know, training with us and whatever. And so they, they, you know, their work life is filled with a lot more flow, but the tangents are delicious. Um, and you have to, first you have to, I think it takes practice in flow to be able to start to distinguish the good tangents from the bad tangents, the good ideas, the bad, you know what I mean? Like you start to get a sense over time. And I don't, other than pattern recognition, I don't know what that is. I don't know what I'm looking at neurobiologically about what we're talking about. Um, but you start to get a sense of these are the ideas I want to follow. They're fruitful. And these are the sideways ones. And you don't know what you got to go a little bit way into the idea. You know what I mean? Usually with, with my writing, I'll, give it a pair like I'll, I'll indulge it for a paragraph and then I'll be like, Oh wow, this is not this. I got to get, get rid of it. And, um, that's the discipline is just saying, no, no, as much as I like this. And I have an excerpt file, like all the stuff that I like, but I cut and maybe I get to use it someplace else. You that's know, funny. Everywhere. I do the same thing on anything that I write. There's always a page that's like completely committed to the, it's like a concept or a thought 
or even just a phrasing that I think will be repurposed somewhere else. It's like, like just everything that was left on the editing floor. Right. It helps you discern though, to know that you can kind of pop them somewhere else. Cause then you're not completely. Yeah. You're things. not like totally breaking up. You're like seeing other people, you know, but I, by the way, can... I have learned never go into the clipping folder. You just Tell don't me. do it because well, it's all delicious. That's I know all the great stuff you wrote that didn't fit. It's, it's still the loves that fit. got away. You're yeah, right. Exactly. I know. Um, Sarah, I'm curious from your perspective as a as a psychologist, what do you see the role being for reading fiction for high performance or just psychological well-being? In oh, general? that's such a great thing. Well, having done this experiment, first of all, this is the first time I read a book like. Um, probably honest to God, a fiction book since college that I engaged this way. Like it was like a full, and even Stephen, when I talked to you a few weeks ago and I was like, I haven't finished it yet. You're like, you have to be done by that night. And I was like, I am, a, I am a luxuriating in these characters. Like I'm having a moment with them. Right. Um, so Rian, I am like now committed so I read probably somewhere between, I don't know, 60 and 65 books a year is kind of what I try to estimate, right? Um, and up until this year, zero were fiction. So my lofty goal for 2022 is to have at least another fiction book in. It was so enjoyable. And I saw myself also, I noticed this like, in the beginning. Wait, you're going to read one more novel for all of 2022. So two novels a year, okay. 65 to two. I'm taking the 1% rule, by the way, sir. Okay, no, I'm no, setting I'm just, my I'm, goals. No, no, I'm just, I just want to make sure my math is correct. That's yeah, all. I'm just your math, math is correct. Okay, exactly. right. um, so here's the thing, too, is here's where I think, I don't know whether or not I would say I think this will directly result in high performance. But when you take the overall like quotient of curiosity, um, this is a philosophy book as much as it's anything. Uh, at least that's how I metabolized it. And um, like for me, it let my brain think in a way and tangent and imagine in ways that nonfiction doesn't. And so that added this whole layer to my life. And then there was something lovely about having these characters. It was like, anytime I sort of like needed to like escape reality, I was like, oh, I can go connect with Lion. Like I can go like hang out with my <laughs> friends in the mega linkage, <laughs> you know, I can, <laughs> I can go do that. Um, so I just think it's something I'm certainly going to incorporate it more regularly. And I do think that it probably lends to a type of creative thinking that if you're, mm. if you live in the nonfiction world, the way that I do, you sort of live inside of facts that, um, let me know. make my, let me make my case for it from a flow perspective. Oh, I want to say so, one yeah. more thing before you okay. say this. Okay. Cause I forgot about, okay. So I could see myself too. When I would sit down, there would be this friction period, the first sort of eight pages where I'd kind of be like resisting mm. getting 
into it, right? And then I could feel myself like slip into the story. I could see my, I could see it better in my mind. And when I would get there, I could tell, oh, I'm in flow. I'm in the fiction version of flow, of, of enjoying this. And that, if I paired that, if I did this reading before I needed to go do other work that was super concentrated, it always worked. It always worked. Even if I carved out just 30 minutes and I was like, oh, I'll read and then I'll go do this work work. It always worked. All right. So wait a minute, you were using devil's dictionary to get you into flow and then carrying that flow state into your work. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's I could feel myself resisting it. Like I wouldn't, it was like, well, oh. there's so we, we actually, the pages are impregnated with a chemical. No, <laughs> um, but uh, people are going to be like, really? I was like licking them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, <sighs> What I have found is, you the you know reading is a is a I mean Chick sent me I had said once that reading is probably the most common flow state on earth, so well known. I think what I think why I think it's re reading fiction is so important. One, I say you know, nonfiction gives you facts; fiction gives you perspective. Um, it for because it forces you to go live in a world that's not your world, right? And that, first of all, that expands empathy. It expands worldviews. It's multi-perspectival thinking. It's, you know, it's good for us. But what I think is really critical about it is brain does pattern recognition. It produces dopamine. And so I always tell people to read 25 to 50 pages a, a day in a book that's pretty far outside your core subject because the farther away from like your core subject, the, the brain's going to automatically find the link. It does pattern recognition automatically. So if you're reading something far away from your core subject, sooner or later, the brain's going to find a way to link it together. And when those are big links, those lead to big aha moments. And so what I find is if I'm just reading facts, even if I'm reading far away from my core subject, it doesn't produce as much fodder for pattern recognition. So for flow proneness overall, I think having fiction regularly in the mix, and I I usually go like three nonfiction books for every novel I tend to read. And with novels, I tend to alternate like fun thriller, something that, that moves fast that I, you know, sci-fi, that kind of stuff and harder, chunkier, meatier fiction, um, which I also think is, is really good, but sometimes it's a little more, more work, but it, you know, so is reading philosophy. Mm. In this one, you get both. Right. Yeah. This one, you sneak well, in a whole bunch of philosophy. One of the things, Stephen, that you snuck in that I, I was fascinated by, and I'd love you to comment a little bit more on, is uh, biophilia or the biophilia hypothesis uh, from E.O. Wilson, who's a Harvard biologist, um, which is the idea that, that life has a deep affinity for life. So I would love if you could explain that hypothesis or concept of E.O. Wilson's to folks. And how it relates to uh, nature relatedness as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, biophilia uh, is really, it's, I mean, there have been a lot of ecological awareness was another term that was used, cross-species empathy. Biophilia was E.O. Wilson's idea. It was published, published a book by that name in 1984 uh, that 
it was one of the sort of, no. all right. The idea that like time in nature is good for our health, it's really old, like dates all the way back to the, to the Greeks. And, and before that, in early America, it became really prominent, the nature cure. There was, they started to believe that the modern world was bad for our brains. It produces anxiety and stress and irritability and a whole bunch of other conditions. I'm here to say and that's so, true. Right. They, they, nature therapy, which was then known as the West cure, became really a big deal. And really prominent Americans, Walt Whitman, Theodore Roosevelt, other people sought the West cure and were healed. And this led scientists, right? This is the same time as science is becoming sort of more formalized. It becomes a full body of research. So why is nature good for us um, has, has been a topic in the 80s and 90s these ideas sort of get summarized and crystallized for the, really for the first time in a really solid way. And the first book is E.O. Wilson's Biophilia, where he's talking about why is nature good for us? Because we we're, we're living creatures and life has a natural affinity for life. And from an evolutionary psychology perspective, right, being in nature, being, you know, in an environment we involved in, less stress, we feel safer. Initially, this got really linked to uh, uh, vision. And it was it originally it was wide vistas, right? We evolved uh, on the veldt in Africa, and so really wide vistas uh, with big nature in the distance seems to you know have the most calming effect. Um, since then, it's gone into a lot of other senses, and uh, there's a lot of crossover work uh, with cannabis research <clears throat> because of all the terpenes in cannabis. All of them are basically you know chemicals that exist naturally in nature <coughs> pinene which shows up in cannabis is the scent produced by pines right that pine needle scent is pinene sometimes shows up in cannabis. so there's been a lot of work on how these terpenes impact mood and behavior and things like that so it it's it's gone on but biophilia was one of the early kind of big ideas here so th this popped up a couple of times in the comments and um, the question is how does a more empathic world impact capitalism i mean i think uh Stephen, at least my interpretation of your writing and you know what we do at flow research collective as well is that the, the view toward certain forms of capitalism under the abundance frame is quite positive so i'm curious you know what your take is there around um increases in empathy and how that could impact capitalism positively and just what your overall take is on that topic. well i <laughs> There, this could go any which way. I'm just going to stay sort of focused on, on on stuff that I know a little about and sort of it floats in and around the Devil's Dictionary, which is external externalities is a very funny word, right? It, it, it's, it's the stuff in a market economy that sits outside the economy that isn't priced. So clean air is an ex environmental externality. A lot of the reasons climate change is such an issue is because the environment was considered an externality and there were you know decades of research people trying to like fight back against this and and you know we created ecosystem services and then people put you know price tags on uh, amory lovins famously from the rocky mountain institute brilliant environmentalist um and paul hawkins uh, wrote uh, in Natural Capitalism, they basically looked at all the things, all the ecosystem, ecosystem services are all the things the environment does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. So wood production, food production, uh, water filtration, uh, climate regulation is the, is the really famous one, right? And so there are 
roughly 36 depending ecosystem services. And, and like one of them is something we've been talking a lot about in a sense is the spiritual component in nature, right? We go into nature and, and there's a soulful connection there. It's hard to put a price on that. Um, but they, they tried very, very hard, just trying to get capitalists to understand that these externalities actually have value. And now, um, everything that's going on in the environmental movement is still, you know, now we don't have the word externalities anymore. It's starting finally to go away. And we're starting to see, you know, companies willing to kind of pay for these things. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's producing a slightly different capitalism. And when I think about like capitalism and empathy, capitalism is nothing more or less than a system for sharing value at scale. That's what it is. It's there was designed now. It there's better. There's empathic versions of capitalism and there's ruthless versions of capitalism. But and everything nothing, in between. It's it's nothing more or less than just a system for how do we cooperate and share value at at, at scale in an efficient way. And you know, parts of it are awesome and parts of it are horrific. Like you know, sort of everything else. And certainly you can weaponize capitalism like nothing else. And we've seen that, but we can, we've also seen a giant movement towards, you know, triple bottom line, uh, capitalism and, and, and things along those lines. So you start to see, you know, I still believe business can be a tremendous force for good for these reasons, but you, you don't get to have things like externalities. When I think about empathy, in capitalism, I think, oh, finally, we're going to get rid of freaking externalities um, and, you know, all the all the invisible damages being done by capitalism. I'm going to just stop there. I babble into obscurity. I'll, I'll, I'll just give two one second, which is that I, I sort of the, the I think that like the discussion about oxytocin and tribalism, right? I think, you know, the research is fairly robust that if we have healthy empathy, actually our leadership does better. Like mm -hmm. leaders do better with empathy as sort of a guiding principle and a motto of how they want to fuel their performance, right? And I think that... Um, it can go either way because it, it's inside of a person and people can do horrible things. But in general, I think um, probably increased empathy will change capitalism because it will change our, it'll change the leaders that are like pulling the major strings inside of this as Stephen rightly calls it a system, right? A system of scaling. Um, so, you know, it's really up to us what we do with it. And this book begs these questions about that sort of what you do with your, let's call them superpowers. Love it. Thank you for that answer as well, Sarah. So quick question for you, Sarah, and then Stephen, I want to give you the final word. Sarah, what was the biggest uh, thing you were left with after reading Devil's Dictionary? And Stephen, what is the biggest thing you want readers to leave with? Well, it just so happens that, I mean, there were so many things. This would take a whole nother call. But I will say my favorite 
Um, my favorite Lion Zorn quote, which I'm going to happily get this in at the last minute. Um, Stephen, you are right if I read a quote from the book? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Why There's not? two. All right, there's two, right. actually. One is the best piece of advice for people. It's tucked away like mid-book. I, I read it, I highlighted it, and circled it. Um, and it's something that often only investigative journalists and shrinks appreciate how good this advice is. So um, he's they're, they're talking about like how they should sort of engage this character to essentially like um, open them up, you know, get them talking. And he says, this is Lion, he says, he thought the conversation should start with a little misdirection, just a touch of the weird. Follow the weird with a smooth ego stroke. Tilt him, Lion explained, then make him, sell, then make him feel safe and happy and blabby. It's a dopamine thing. He'll open up. And it's like probably the most genius advice if you're needing to get sort of immediately in with, um, with somebody. But okay, so my all-time favorite, which I think this is like the heart of Lion Zorn, he says, I travel a lot for work. I meet all kinds of people. You know what's rare in the world? Stupid people. They're out there, but not in the numbers that most believe. You know what is out there? People who speak different languages, even if they speak the same language, they speak different languages. Know what I mean? If you can figure out what language someone speaks and talk to them about something they truly care about, pretty quickly you figure out everybody's smart about something. And that is why I think it's Lion Zorn 2024. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Love it, Sarah. It's great. Um, Stephen, you I think Sarah should have the last word. I don't think I have to follow that with anything. <laughs> and we're out. Mic drop. <laughs> what were you saying, Rain? No, just do you want to do you want to share your final uh, sentiment on what you hope folks leave with after reading Devil's Dictionary? Yeah, the burning desire to buy Last Tango in cyberspace and read the first one backwards. Of course, backwards sequel. Like how we, we saw, we like how we saw Star Wars. Wars. This was capital. We were talking about empathetic capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Watching it in action. I love it. All righty. Well, listen, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Sarah Sarkis, for your time. Thank oh, you, Stephen. Everybody, you hope you enjoyed. And uh, again, Devil's Dictionary, you can click the link below to buy it on Amazon. On, it's on Audible as well. The audio version is incredible, by the way. I want to plug that as well. Stephen, you found uh, an amazing uh, voice actor to do the audio version. So definitely recommend it. Yeah, he's great. Anyone's an, yeah, anyone's an Audible fan, it, it brings it to life. I did both written and then I did the audio version uh, about three or four months afterwards and both went well together. So everybody, I encourage you to grab some copies of Devil's Dictionary. Thank you all for, for tuning in. See you and, at the book uh, club meeting. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Sarah, thank you so much for hanging out with us. I love Rain, the note you play. I say oh, it all the time. That's nice of you. It's all um, so true. Back at you. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. And now that we've had our own private little love fest, I'm <laughs> going to hang up because I'm embarrassed. Is it time to start drinking? <laughs> <laughs> all right.
Yes. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning Bye, in. Guys. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.